Last week, I talked about how poor the so-called poor really are and how we gather and calculate the figures. I provided data about two different cities and I compared relative to one another in order to illustrate how these problems associated with poverty tend to cluster together. There's one other way of looking at this that also reveals the special seriousness of poverty for minorities. Some people who study poverty say that's what's really most important in how poverty affects your life is not just how, the bare fact of how much money you have or don't have, it's whether you live in a community where lots of other people are poor too, which some scholars call concentrated poverty. And why is concentrated poverty so important? Because it's in those communities where you're likely to see the worst problems. That's where it all comes together. You don't just have a few people who don't have much money. You have a whole community whose way of life is shaped by not having enough, and by a lot of other things that go along with not having enough, like poor job opportunities, poor schools, poor health care, high crime, and so on. This is the kind of neighborhood that we've been talking about. When I talk about, for example, those neighborhoods in Oakland or Compton or other parts of Los Angeles, the places that are devastated by violence, where violence is a fact of life. Now, it's important to be clear that even in these areas of concentrated poverty, by no means everybody is poor, and by no means everybody is out of work or doing drugs and crime. Again, that's a stereotype. That's part of the myth. But the kernel of truth is that things are rough all the way around in these neighborhoods. It's not just that poverty itself is concentrated, but also a lot of the problems that go along with it are concentrated too. Meaning, for example, that growing up as a kid in that kind of neighborhood is different than it is for kids in other neighborhoods. Now, one way this kind of concentration is measured is to define a neighborhood as being in concentrated poverty or being in a high poverty area if 40% or more of the people who live in it are poor. Again, poor by the official federal poverty measure. And when we look at who's li who lives in those neighborhoods as opposed to who just has an income below the poverty line, we see a pretty striking racial difference. Now, the government put figures out for this for the years 2006 to 2010. And during those years, while African-Americans were just about one-fourth of the poor overall, they were about two out of five of the people who lived in these high-poverty neighborhoods. That is, two out of five of the people who were crammed into these areas of concentrated poverty with all the problems that those neighborhoods tend to have. But the first myth that we're going to talk about, uh, let's say that there are th three main myths about poverty. The first one is that only minorities are poor. But in fact, we're going to see just how far from reality that myth is. According to the 2010 census data, there were about 240 million white people in the U.S. 31 million of them were poor. Now remember, we have a little over 46 million poor in the U.S. That means that roughly 67% of the total impoverished population is white. Now the rate of the white poor, the impoverished relative to the non-poor, is 13%. That means your chances of being poor, if you're white, is slightly over 1 in 10. African Americans only comprise roughly 16% of the total population. But if we look at impoverished blacks with nearly 11 million poor, they comprise one-fourth of the total poor population, and their rate of poverty is twice that of rate of whites, 27.4 to be exact. Their numbers are rivaled by Hispanics. Hispanics of any race comprise one-sixth of our total population, but they have a staggering 14 million poor, which translates into the chances of being poor for someone of Hispanic descent is 26.5%. And Asians, who comprise about 5% of the total population, have almost 2 million poor, and have nearly the same chances of a white person being poor, which is 12.2%. So the myth, like most myths, 
again, is not entirely wrong, it's just that it's exaggerated. Poverty is not just a minority problem. Above all, it's not just a problem of a relatively tiny underclass that is very different from everybody else. Poverty is a very broad, very widespread problem in America that strikes white people more than anyone else in terms of sheer numbers. It's a condition that many, many people face in the United States over their lifetimes, many more than are counted in our official poverty measure. But at the same time, it's true that some people are more likely to be in that condition than others, and they're more likely to be in it for a longer time, and they're more likely to be surrounded by lots of others who are in the same boat. So that's all of what I've been calling myth number one. Remember, I said there are three big myths about poverty that I want to talk about, and that's the first one. The mixture of a truth and falsehood that we see in myth number one about race and poverty also appears in what we can call myth number two about the poor, which is that married people aren't poor. All you have to do to keep from being poor is to be sure you get married if you have children. And again, this myth is rooted in an important reality during the last 40 years or so, there was a very important change in the nature of the poverty population. Many more people in poverty were now living in families that were headed by single parents, especially single women, and far fewer proportionally lived in families headed by a married couple. That part's true. But this reality led to a new stereotype, a new exaggeration. For some people, when they thought of poor people, the image that popped into their minds was a single woman living on a welfare check with a bunch of kids. And again, as with race and poverty, the media tend to reinforce that stereotype. You're much more likely to see pictures of that kind of family when you pick up a magazine article about poor families in America than you are to see a picture of a husband and wife with a couple of kids. And it's not just among the media or the public that you see the stereotype. For a long time now, there's been an argument made by some people who study the poverty problem. Some social scientists that say if it weren't for this explosion of single parent families, we'd hardly have a poverty problem at all. In this perspective, poverty becomes defined as basically a moral problem rather than an economic one. The basic premise, again, is that nobody has to be poor in America. All you have to do in order to not be poor is do the right thing, which means when it comes to marriage and having children, you stay together. The problem from this viewpoint is that too many people are just having kids irresponsibly without any thought of who's going to actually provide for them. Now we're going to see that this argument is also merged with another argument about the causes of poverty, which is that we've actually encouraged people to engage in this irresponsible behavior through some of our social policies, especially by giving people welfare. In fact, in the 1980s and 1990s, this became the most popular explanation of why we have so much poverty in America. The argument goes that welfare encourages poverty. And this explanation is what prompted much of our social policies towards poverty and welfare over the last 20 to 30 years. As we'll soon see, when we start looking specifically at the welfare system, we changed it a lot back in the 1990s. We restricted welfare dramatically, we put all kinds of new conditions on what you had to do to get a welfare check, and we put new limits on how long any family could receive it. Now we're going to be taking a hard look a little later on at whether this criticism of welfare as a so-called cause of poverty was ever really accurate. Did the welfare system really encourage people to just lie around and have babies, as the stereotype suggested? Or are things just a little more complicated than that? And moreover, what's been the result of the changes in that system that we made based on this argument about the consequences of, of welfare? Did those changes actually reduce poverty, as many people expected they, they would? But that's for later. For now, 
I'll just point out how much this idea has driven our approach to poverty. The idea that poverty is a problem. It's a bad behavior. That among the most important of these bad behaviors that make people poor is the failure to get married. So we can examine it. Is this true? And the facts are that it isn't. Though, once again, this belief is based on an important reality. Here's how the poverty population looks today when it comes to their family structure. As of 2010 census, there were more than 9 million poor families in the United States. Now you notice, that's different, of course, from the number of poor people. Remember I said last week that we have about 46 million poor people. Well, a lot of those people live in one of the 9 million poor families in the U.S. A lot of others are what the Census Bureau calls unrelated individuals, people who are not in families, but they're living by themselves. Now, of those more than 9 million poor families, slightly more than half are what the Census Bureau calls families, quote, headed by a female householder with no husband present. That is, families headed by a female single parent. Now, there's a roughly 900,000 of those families which are headed by a male householder, no spouse present. That is, families headed by a male single parent. But there's also well over 3 million poor families that are headed by a married couple, 3.6 million to be exact, as of the year 2010. So once again, the myth is wrong, because it's too extreme. Being married isn't some sort of vaccine against being poor. In fact, almost two out of five poor families are headed by a married couple. If you look more closely at how this works out for di different ethnic groups, you'll see that this proportion is even higher for some groups, particularly for Hispanics and for some Asian Americans. An unusually high proportion of them are married. They live in families with two parents, what sometimes are called intact families, yet they're still poor. But once again, like myth number one, this myth is based on an important partial truth. Marriage certainly doesn't ensure you against being poor, but you are more likely to be poor if you aren't married, and even poor if you have kids. Again, a lot of poor families are headed by a married couple, so marriage isn't some kind of foolproof way to avoid poverty. Far from it. But it is true that you're more likely to be poor if you have kids when you're not married. Now let's look at it again in terms of the rates of poverty. Now at last count, when I'm using 2010 census data, about 6% of families headed by a married couple were poor. Again, that's a lot because it translates into more than 3.5 million families. But almost a third, 32% of them, of families headed by a single woman are below the poverty line. And the figure is only 16% for families headed by a single man. Notice the difference? Something's going on here. If you're a single man raising a couple of kids, you're not that likely to be poor. Although you are more likely to be poor than a married couple heading a family. You see how this works out? If you're a single woman raising kids, you're twice as likely to be poor as a single man raising kids. Why is that? Some people think that maybe this suggests that the problem isn't so much being unmarried. The problem is being unmarried and not being able to bring home a male paycheck. But I'll get back to that when we start talking about jobs a little later on in the podcast series. So that's myth number two, which is if you're married, you won't be poor. And that leads us right into myth number three about poverty, which is if you work, you won't be poor. Now, this is another piece of that larger explanation of poverty that locates the problem in people's individual behavior rather than in something about the way our society is structured, something about the way our economy works. Now here, the idea is equally simple as in myth number two about marriage. This is the argument. The reason people are poor is that they don't have a job. If they just got up off their, I don't know, couches and went to work, they wouldn't be poor, the argument goes. 
As with the marriage myth, this one, once again, turns poverty into a moral problem. Just stop being lazy, get a job, and you won't have this problem. And once again, we see the same kind of pattern. There's a partial truth to this idea, but the myth exaggerates the truth so much that it becomes an untruth. And an untruth that hides some of the very more important realities about poverty in the United States. Let's take a look at how this works. The rate of poverty for people who worked during the year 2010 was about 7%. That's about half the national average. Remember, in 2010, the overall poverty rate in America was approximately 15%. The rate of poverty among people who didn't work at all during 2010 was about 24%. So close to 1 in 4 people who didn't work at all during 2010 were poor. So you are indeed much more likely to be poor if you don't work at all than if you do. But here's the other side of the story. Just like marriage, work is no guarantee against poverty. More than 10 million Americans over the age of 16 who worked in 2010 were poor that year. Nearly 3 million of them worked a year round and full-time, but were still poor. And the ranks of those people who were still uh, working full-time and still poor, not surprisingly, they're often called the working poor, have increased very rapidly in the last few years. Now we'll be looking later on at that question of how it can be that you can work full-time all year long and still have an income that keeps you below the poverty line. And we'll also be looking at the question of why so many Americans don't work and what that tells us about our economy. But for now, the important thing to remember is that work, although it certainly helps, doesn't reliably keep you from being poor in our society. So just to sum up what we've been saying about these three myths about poverty in America, we've seen that it's a huge problem, one that is inadequately described by the common myths that a lot of people believe. It's not something that just affects a small and dysfunctional underclass. It's a condition that affects a large number of Americans, especially if you consider the vast numbers who will fall below the poverty line at some point in their lives. And though the risks of poverty are worse for some minorities, most of those people who fall below the poverty line are white. If you work, you're less likely to be poor than if you don't, but getting a job is no guarantee that you won't be poor. That's the same with getting married. You're more likely to be poor if you have kids and aren't married, but being married doesn't necessarily keep you out of poverty. Now, some people might say at this point, okay, so lots of people are what you're calling poor, but how big of a problem is that really? I mean, after all, these people are being called poor by American standards, right? And this is a very rich country. In any other country, a lot of these people would be considered pretty well off. Now that raises the question of how our problem of poverty in the United States compares with poverty in other countries around the world. And that's what we'll be coming back to next week to look at that question.